Welcome to another episode of Greenlight Podcast. My name is Claudia and I'm super honored to have Marcin Katvorczyk here with me today. Marcin has been a professor of finance at the Imperial College London Business School since 2013. He's also a research fellow at the Center for Economic Policy and Research and a research advisor at the European Central Bank and formerly the president of the European Finance Association. Marcin's research interests are in investments, information economics, climate risk, financial intermediation, and artificial intelligence, including pricing of carbon risk, incentives to divest carbon-intensive assets, and the role of global regulation and technological changes therein. We're going to talk about all of this in our podcast, but I just want to mention that his articles have appeared in leading journals like Econometrica, Journal of Finance, and Journal of Financial Economics, as well as CNBC, CNN, and Bloomberg. Prior to his time at Imperial, Marcin was appointed at the University of British Columbia Sauter School of Business and the New York University Stern School of Business. He obtained a PhD in finance from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Welcome to the Green Eyes Podcast, Marcin. Uh, nice to meet you, Claudia. Good to see you again. Yeah, great to see you. So for non-Imperial listeners, uh, Marcin, uh, together with uh, another professor, Patrick Bolton, taught a course on financial markets and climate change in the um, MSc Climate Change Management and Finance Program. So that's where we met. Um, but let's go all the way back to when you started your career. So you come from Poland, uh, but a significant part of your career has been abroad. Uh, so could you maybe walk us, walk us through your journey, uh, both academic as well as professional? Where did you study? What led you to pursue all this career in Yes, no, uh, definitely. It's a long journey. When I reflect back on that, it actually feels like, oh, wow, so many places. So I grew up in Poland, as you mentioned. So I went to undergraduate school in Poland, Warsaw School of Economics. And that's where I did my degree in uh, economics and uh, finance. But interestingly, at the same time, at Warsaw University, I was studying geography. So that will be important for our later conversation, I, I assume, because we will be talking about climate. But that, at that time, essentially, when I was uh, finishing my degree in uh, finance, I realized I really wanted to learn more. And I felt like, okay, it seems like a lot of research in finance is actually conducted in North America and the United States. So I thought, how about I apply for a doctoral program in the US? So, so that's how I thought about uh, moving abroad. I applied to a few PhD programs and luckily I got uh, admitted to University of Michigan and that's where I went to do my uh, degree in uh, finance. I spent five years in Ann Arbor, Michigan and then when I finished uh, I applied for an academic job and my first job was at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Beautiful place uh, for many reasons but also a fantastic place to start as a professor. So I spent four years in uh, Vancouver and then one day I got a call from New York University. Look, uh, would you think uh, about moving there? And coincidentally, at the time, my sister lived in New York. So I said, hmm, for family reasons, that sounds like actually a good idea to move there. So, so I decided to actually accept that job. And uh, I spent five years uh, at NYU. And then as you are there, you realize, okay, you are European. It's, everything is so far. You are missing a lot of things uh, that are happening here. And, and at some point, my former colleague from uh, University of British Columbia, who is a professor here as well, he says, look, we are looking for good professors at Imperial. How about you think about us? I said, like, ah, you know, I don't know, but it doesn't cost me to come and give a seminar here. And I came and it's kind of stayed. So, so that's uh, my journey to Imperial. And of course, I've been at Imperial for now almost 10 years. So it's quite a long time and yeah, quite happy here. And so you teach uh, pure finance because we've experienced you in more of a climate um, environment. Mm -hmm. But uh, what what is your kind of main? Your yes, no, that's a good point. So so most of the teaching kind of uh, activity that I've been doing throughout my career was largely related to the story of investments. 
So investments, uh, asset management uh, were the kind of early specialties that I've been uh, quite active in. So naturally speaking, this was the kind of course I used to teach. And I actually taught this course until uh, this year at Imperial as well. So for the last 10 years, I've been teaching a class on uh, portfolio management. But given all the extra obligations I'm getting these days, I will be only teaching now uh, the climate course and the PhD class we have uh, offered to our students. So I won't be teaching the portfolio management class anymore. Interesting. Um, we're going to come to all the different obligations during this talk, but one last question about kind of why finance and also about geography. I didn't know about geography, but why finance? Was this something you wanted to do as a small kid? And And the second question to that is, what does a life of finance professor look like? Because the guests in Green Minds previously right. were professionals from you know the business area, but tell us, how, how does it look like for you day to day? No, so that may come as a little bit of a surprise because finance was not my first choice in the first place. So, so one thing which is interesting about me, and I feel kind of lucky about it in my life, is that I wanted to become a professor since I was four which you may ask, how did it happen? And funny enough, I didn't have any family members being actually an academic before. So I don't know where it came from, the God's hand. But essentially, I was very much uh, thinking that I want to be a professor when I was even before I went to school. But I think what was important about that is that I was very passionate about geography. That's where the geography comes. So for a very long time, pretty much until the age of 20 or so, I wanted to actually become a geography professor. So what's interesting in Poland, we have this uh, national competition of geography where you compete with other colleagues in high school and then you go to the national level where you have uh, professors from top universities, the geographers. And through this kind of uh, interactions, uh, I told them I want to become a professor of geography. And they told me, look, don't do this. It's not a good career. Like you may enjoy geography, but being a geography professor in Poland may not be actually a good idea for you. So think of something else. And, and essentially the way how I arrived at finance and economics was that I said, okay, so what is it that I like beyond geography? And I said to myself, I like mathematics. And then I said, okay, if I combine geography with mathematics, where do I arrive? And that's how economics became a topic. So I said, okay, a combination of geography and uh, mathematics is economics. So that's what I should be studying. And that's how uh, economics has become a subject of my undergraduate study. And then within economics, I always considered finance to be the most practical kind of uh, field. And I felt this is what interests me the most. And that's how I became a finance person rather than just a pure economics uh, person. And when you're a professor, um, how much of your, because you do a lot of research, I, when, when one opens your Google Scholar and there's so many, so many, your kind of your exponential curve of citation is, is to be seen. Um, how does your kind of work look like? Do you, how much time do you spend on research versus teaching versus right. maybe other activities? No, that's a great question. And this is a question that sometimes you a little bit uh, smile at uh, when you are asked, because uh, oftentimes students think that your job as a professor is just purely teaching jobs. So uh, when I tell my friends, oh, I'm a professor at the university, sometimes they rephrase my statement, oh, you are a teacher. So which is, of course, a very important part of my job. And it's, it's, it, this is really what's uh, kind of like the mission for us as professors to educate others. But it's also fair to say that this is not probably the activity I spend the most time on. So, so the way how it works at what we call the research active universities, such as Imperial Colleges, is that we actually have kind of a block of time in our uh, calendar year where we teach. And this for me usually happens in the fall semester. And that's when I'm devoting a lot of my time and attention to my students. 
But right now, for example, we are in winter semester. I don't have teaching obligations at the moment. And that's essentially the time when I pretty much spend my time mostly doing research and also, of course, uh, other kind of activities related to the job. Like I'm an editor of uh, one of the main journals in finance. So, so that takes a lot of my time as well. But yes, so largely it's a research activity. So, so if you kind of think of it in terms of timing, I would say it's about 10 to 12 weeks of teaching. And the rest is a research activity. So it gives you a kind of perspective of where the weights are distributed in terms of what I do on a daily basis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe let's hop onto the research uh, part as it all comprises a big part of your year. So how has your research evolved over the years? Before we come to more re- the climate related, you mentioned mm-hmm. in several other articles that you are interested in information mm-hmm. and how that inter- interacts. So kind of how did you, how, how did you start your research and how, where, where are you now? No, that's actually a great point. So, so just to, if you remember, I mentioned this uh, undergraduate studies I've done in Poland. And one of the things that we have to do in Poland as a requirement for the degree is to write a thesis. And at that time, I kind of got interested in this idea of how people get informed, what it means to be privately informed versus not. So this was the original kind of motivation to study more from my PhD. So this idea of uh, how information gets uh, created and how it gets processed and how do actors interact with each other in the possession of information has been something that actually interested me quite a lot for big part of my career, including right now I still do research on, uh, on economics of information, but significantly less for obvious reason, because in the recent time I've, I've really devoted a lot of my energy into climate research. But, but yeah, information I think is kind of interesting because it's at the core of uh, economics. Essentially, any decision that we make in economics uh, involves uh, some kind of information set. So, so I always wanted to think of myself as someone who works on research which has some practical uh, and, uh, implication of that. And I felt that this idea of uh, information and how it transmits through markets is actually quite practical because on a daily basis we are surrounded by news and we need to understand how that news gets actually incorporated into asset prices, into financial decisions. So that's kind of where, where I came from in terms of economics of information. And what was the turning point for you to start uh, dedicating more time to climate change in your research? Yeah, that's actually a great question. So, I mean, as you know, deep in my heart, this is actually what I do right now. It's where I started my life. So, so it's not really like there was some kind of sudden, you know, uh, sensation that, uh, you know, I need to do climate. In fact, this was something I always wanted to be involved in, but... To some extent, what we need to also understand is the context. You know better than I, or you know equally well, that the climate has become more and more important over time. So if you reflect back on, say, the 90s, early 2000, I don't think there was too much uh, conversation about that. And to some extent, that a little bit affects you how you think about it, you know, because as a junior professor, of course, you want to be a bold professor, but at the same time, you also have a little bit of this career concern that you want to work on something that other people think it's important and relevant. And if I kind of rewind back to the early 2000s, I don't think there were many people to, who talk about it. And we will probably talk about it in a moment. But as you know, one of the papers I've written early on was the paper titled The Price of Sin with my uh, colleague Harrison Hong. And at that time, when we wrote this paper, we were pretty much one of the first, if not the first paper that ever talked about sustainability in the context of finance. And, uh, and in this uh, time, uh, it felt like, okay, it was interesting, but people didn't think of it as like a big idea. It turned out that we are very much ahead of the time. And now the paper is really getting a lot of attention. But 15, 20 years ago, it was more thought of as a cute idea rather than actually a very important paper. So over time, 
as people started realizing that this is actually important, the paper kind of got uh, revisited as a very important contribution. But, but coming back, uh, essentially, so this kind of inspired my interest in these issues of sustainability. And I always was kind of holding back because I felt like, okay, is it like now a good time? And just to give credit to, uh, you mentioned Patrick Bolton, he was the one who actually encouraged me again because we, we had some uh, event uh, here at Imperial. We chatted, of course, he knew about my earlier work I've done on, on that topic and said, oh, you know, like I'm also interested in this. Maybe we should actually start doing some work together. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm deep inside. I, I'm very excited to actually keep doing it because I felt like I left it uh, halfway uh, through. And, and that's since then we, we started working uh, together. So that's been like five years, six years now that we've been doing research in climate finance. Yeah, um, public greetings to Patrick uh, this way. And we're going to also be honored to have him on the podcast as well. Um, yeah, you, I just want to pick up on one point that you said about, you know, climate change becoming more of a an area in the past years but I still want to emphasize that the research in this area kind of the data driven and really like thorough methodological research published in big papers is still kind of only started to grow in these years um I have this like conflict that half of my class already knows that I wrote my bachelor thesis on your research and I kind of got the the sense of the landscape of the papers and the climate finance papers are still kind of there's still not too much um of them mm -hmm. Or, or how, do, how would you say? Like, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and uh, I think partly uh, the problem could be a little bit how the researchers have phrased the problem. So, I, I, I mean, again, like reflecting back on where the journey kind of in the academia has gone on this uh, research, I think one of the uh, mistakes is that people went for this kind of early wins, easy wins, like the whole kind of idea of ESG, of course, is very important, but it also lacked a little bit of a discipline. So in this regard, people thought it was not a serious research. So I remember there were papers being written that were not taken seriously because there was not really much thought. And I think what has happened over the last few years, which I think changed the perspective a little bit, is that people are now really thinking more deeply about these topics. And I think there is more rigor and there is more structure in terms of how to think about this. And I think by doing that, you kind of get more uh, reception from, from the broader audience of uh, finance. And of course, it helps that there is a massive interest from both practitioners and regulators. So I can't tell you how many talks I've given over the last four or five years. It's just intense. Like I probably have given 150 talks over the last three years. So, so that's a lot of actually uh, seminars that uh, I don't think many people have given more than that. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll talk about it in a bit. Just uh, one last question before we hop on in more details of the research. So... What would you say are like the biggest challenges when you do research? What kind of limits you most? And then what is the most fun? So what yeah. keeps you going? No, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think there are different kind of challenges you have uh, in general. Of course, the challenge, of course, is always to come up with a good question, you know? So I think that's the part where you spend the most time. I think one thing you learn over time when you become more and more senior is that there is a high cost of actually working on something which doesn't have uh, good potential because it kind of uh, distracts you from pursuing other ideas. So, so that's what I consider challenging, this idea of uh, uh, being able to actually uh, uh, come up with what I think is the idea with uh, promise versus what I think is the idea that holds uh, less promise. And, and I probably agree that I've become better at that. Uh, so that's one. In terms of like more direct challenges that uh, you are asking about in, in the context of climate finance, and, and I'm sure you would agree with that, 
clearly the number one challenge was the data, right? That uh, until like five, uh, six years ago, we really didn't have very good data uh, on many aspects of uh, climate finance, but starting with things like emissions, etc. So, so it was harder. We had data on physical science. This is where geography kind of background comes to play. But when it comes to things related to transition risk, uh, to regulation, to how we should be thinking about evaluating the behavior of companies, I think we had much less. And I think there is a massive progress in the way how this data is being now available to researchers. And I think uh, that made it easier. So, so I think it's still a challenge. As you know, there is this whole challenge with the disclosure of information, etc. So this will continue. But I think if you reflect back on where we were, say, 10 years ago versus where we are right now, there is basically no comparison that there is much more you can do now that you could do uh, 10 years ago. And I think it will be getting better and better because I think the world wants to go in this way. The regulation is being written in that way. And I think uh, that will make it more accessible to more people to actually study uh, this kind of uh, topics. And in terms of fun, you know, I love what I do. And again, I, I, I just cannot tell you it's, it's something I kind of was born with. Like, uh, I, that's why I said I, I feel really blessed that... Uh, I never had doubts in my mind what I wanted to do in life, that I really like researching. I was writing research uh, papers when I was like nine years old. So, so in this regard, uh, it just was with me, you know. So I, as I told you, like I didn't ever think it's going to be finance. But uh, with climate now, I feel like I make a full circle. I came back to the topics that I studied from different angle as a geographer. And now I can kind of revisit them from a slightly different perspective of being an economist. And it makes it great because many things kind of come back and you feel like, oh, wow, this has been like 30 years ago. You know, I never thought that uh, it will come back to me, you know, so it's a great feeling to have. That's great to hear. And uh, one more question about the paper when you were nine years old. What was that about? How did you... It was about geography. So essentially what I did, I was studying uh, the landscape of the neighborhood where I grew up. I drew maps. Uh, I conducted like a research investigation of the changing environment when you build an artificial reservoir around the hometown when I was born. So, so I made a number of trips uh, and uh, took samples of soil, uh, look at the clouds and measured precipitation in yeah. different areas. So, so yeah, this is what I was doing. Yeah. You know, no, That's amazing. And, and to hear this, like coming back with the full circle, the climate change. And I think your research is like one of the most valuable ones and for practice is what you also say. Um, so let's kind of hop into it with uh, what you're actually studying. So one of the biggest, uh, we'll come back to the price of sin research, but it kind of, as you mentioned, started it all. But that one's more about the divestment versus engagement kind right. of challenge. But I'd like to start maybe with um, the big one on carbon transition risk. So could you please explain um, to people who know about climate change but maybe haven't read your research mm -hmm. what this carbon transition risk or even like climate risk uh, mm -hmm. is in general mm -hmm. and how the financial industry started to focus on physical versus transition Right. So, so I think what's important to realize is that, of course, it all starts from the physical science. So I think what we know by now with quite a strong conviction is that uh, we are living in the era where temperatures are going up. On average, there are these natural processes, geographical processes that make our life potentially endangered. And of course, uh, we can dismiss that. But I think science gets stronger and stronger that it's hard to dismiss it because every year we get uh, more and more data that says that it's potentially problematic. And, and of course, uh, unlike in some other areas like inflation, etc., there is no magic fairy or like no like policy tool that you can just simply turn the button on and mm -hmm. problem is solved. It's a much more complex problem. 
And I think uh, in this regard, uh, this is where the thinking has gone. What it is that we can do to actually start controlling these processes. And of course, you can think about adaptation, how we can build houses that are more resilient, how we can think about uh, sh uh, building houses in areas which are less subject to flooding, hurricanes, etc. But at the, at the end of the day, these adaptation processes are very uncertain and very costly. And I think for that, we need to also think about mitigation, right? So, so mitigation is very much related to how we can control the growth of the temperatures. And I think research in physics tells us that uh, controlling things like emissions uh, of uh, greenhouse gases is, is uh, one way in which we can actually do it. And I think that's where it becomes important to recognize that uh, there is this whole idea that now regulators, the society kind of embraces, which is we need to start uh, decarbonizing. We need to start thinking about uh, the life uh, kind of processes that are going to be less uh, carbon uh, uh, dependent or the greenhouse gas dependent. And that's kind of creating this notion of uncertainty, because what we realize, of course, is that we structured our world in a way that is very much dependent on these greenhouse gases. And it's not like we can make these companies stop doing this overnight. So, so from the perspective of companies that are subjected to this kind of technologies, of course, there is a massive uncertainty in terms of what their future is going to be. And there is, of course... Also an uncertainty from the perspective of someone who finances this company, so the investors. So this is essentially what we call a transition uh, risk. The risk that we need to go from something we would call a brown uh, economy to something that we are going to call a green economy. And that uh, movement from one to the other is not just something that is for free. And that's what we try to in finance capture, how risky that is, how costly it is from the perspective of companies, how costly it is from the perspective of investors, what are the drivers of these particular processes. So that's uh, largely what defines the transition risk. And we contrast this with physical risk, which is essentially the risk which is associated with any kind of damages that could be caused by physical processes. So you can think about insurance sector, real estate sector. Those are the sectors which are heavily exposed to the physical changes in the planet. And we also want to understand how big these damages are for companies. But in some sense, what we learned uh, so far is that this transition risk has become more of an important uh, kind of uh, attention grabbing uh, thing than physical risk at the moment, even though transition risk, of course, is informed by the physical processes, because that's where the whole discussion starts from. Yeah, so that's, there is strong interlink between... Absolutely, absolutely. And so what did you find in the research? So um, kind of does the market take into account this risk to investors? Does the financial industry, the, the people who finance uh, the companies take this into account? And if so, how? Yeah, so this is a great question because in some sense you need to kind of start asking yourself is like, what is it that I should expect? And if you take the perspective of, say, 20 years ago, you would say like no one cared about the climate. So, so as an economist, we tend to think if people don't care about something, that something should not be really like priced or reflected in any kind of asset value. So, so the question is like, even though you and me may care about finance or Greta Thunberg or anyone else, Al Gore, question is, is there enough of the mass or are the important players such as investors, uh, corporates already embracing this idea such that it actually reflects this risk? So this was an empirical question. It's a credible uh, question to ask because we know that the world is very heterogeneous. Just because we are in a location where people care about it, it doesn't mean that there are other locations where people care as much. So given that uh, prices reflect some kind of aggregate view of the world, 
this is uh, where you st want to study it more. So, so what we found essentially is evidence that there seems to be a relationship between the scope of exposure to this transition risk and the valuations of companies uh, in terms of their equity or even like other asset uh, classes. And generally speaking, the message that we try to convey is that companies which are more exposed to this uh, transition risk, so think of it as maybe they have more emissions right now or they have harder time to decarbonize, are companies which are cheaper. So essentially investors are discounting them relative to other companies which are similar but don't have that problem, which in the language of finance also translates into the statement that these companies have potentially higher expected returns. So this is one thing that kind of becomes interesting in itself that in the whole kind of debate of uh, ESG, the common statement is this kind of idea of doing well by doing good. And this is why the price of sin paper has become really important contribution because in a sense, uh, it was kind of turning this paradigm around in a way that I think we need to realize that this is not how it works. So we can do good, but in some sense, this is what constrains us. So in some sense, investors are going to pay some price for doing that. And in this regard, the expected return is kind of paradoxically higher for companies that have a higher transition risk just simply because it compensates investors for, for bearing that risk. So someone to provide capital needs to get this compensation. But, but assets are still cheaper, uh, so that's clearly an, uh, an easier uh, asset to hold in this regard. I have two questions to this conclusion, because um, I, I still want to continue on, that, mm -hmm. on the topic. But before that, I want to ask about like, research versus practice. Because mm -hmm. recently, like we uh, in the course, Climate Change Management Finance, practitioners from the field come to us, and recently we were shown two examples uh, from two different professionals, from two different like asset management companies, comparing financial and environmental performance, and their slides were basically showing uh, exactly this paradigm, like doing well by doing good. Mm -hmm. And they shown some kind of indices uh, comparison. It was basically this opposite idea of what finance teaches you that higher risk means higher return, and what they were claiming is like higher risk, sorry, lower risk and higher return, which doesn't really make sense. Right. So, what I want to ask in this regard is how do you how would you like respond to them? Mm -hmm. Because what I did after the right. lecture is I came to them and I sent them your paper mm -hmm. to show mm -hmm. what you found. Mm -hmm. um, but do you get involved with uh, people like this? You mentioned those right. one hundred fifty mm -hmm. uh, lectures. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to them? How do you confront mm -hmm. them? And yeah. No, it's a great question. And and to be honest with you, Claudia, it's something that I think people uh, tend to get confused about because they observe, for example, something like a Tesla company price and they see this was very high in, say, 2020, 2021. And they tell you, how is it that you are telling me that this company should be basically, uh, you know, offering uh, low returns if they are offering high returns? And I think what we need to understand is the difference between the transition itself and the risk as uh, something that is compensated in the long run. So let me give you a parallel. And again, it's going to come from the price of sin, but mostly because it's actually a great example. So it's an example of a tobacco industry. Okay, So, so not many people may know that uh, tobacco as an industry used to be actually potentially considered a good uh, product. So in the 40s, 50s of the previous century, in fact, the US government used to send cigarettes to the front of the war to actually stimulate the soldiers. And general impression was that this is actually a good uh, product to consume. And only then we learned that uh, basically tobacco had, of course, this cancerogenic uh, uh, consequences and lots of medical reports came. But 
What I'm going with that is that if you look at the values of the tobacco companies around that time, you would find that tobacco companies were extremely uh, highly valued, uh, say, in the 40s and 50s of the previous century. So long time ago, but financial markets actually in the US are dating back to like 19th century, etc. So, so you, they were looking very different than what they look like uh, right now. And then what happened, uh, once the reports started, started coming uh, out on the bad uh, kind of consequences of tobacco consumption, out of a sudden, these companies got massively uh, de devalued. So what you saw around the 60s is that tobacco companies became very cheap. And that's essentially like thinking of what I just told you in terms of transition risk. Companies with high exposure to some risk become low values. And guess what? Once they became very cheap, at some point, it was so cheap that they were literally offering massive expected returns into the future. And that's what happened with tobacco for the subsequent like decades essentially, that if you look from the period of 1960 to, say, 2000s, tobacco is actually one of the best performing industries of all. And of course, ethically and morally, we may think this is like so wrong. Mm -hmm. But financially, that's exactly what you should expect, that people who are exposed to the massive risk, and here the risk, of course, is things like litigation, things like uh, potential, basically, uh, yeah, exactly, regulatory pressure, settlements, etc., are going to drive the values of this. So investors to hold these uh, assets need to be compensated with higher returns. And, and they did get compensated with massive returns. Whether they want to hold these assets or not is a separate story, the story of price of sin, etc. But that's kind of the story of what we see right now. One question that I have about your research is that um, you do this research based on carbon emissions. Um, so carbon emissions is kind of the thing based on which you classify the climate risk. Um, but some investors argue that it's not the only thing that uh, is kind of measuring the climate impact and that maybe it is important to look at, I don't know, the company's products and operation. Maybe they facilitate um, the economy's overall energy transition in a different way than their emissions. So their emissions could be high, but they could be doing something really great. Mm -hmm. um, so what is your what is your take on this? How do you respond to this? No, I think this is a very fair point. And I'm not going to say uh, don't look uh, at other data points as well. I think... What's important, and that's coming back to something we've discussed earlier, is this idea of discipline. So what I think I don't like in people's approaches when they make statements like this is that they kind of throw in stuff without really having a clear prediction and clear framework what it is that we should expect. And this is what I think kind of slowed down the progress of ESG, as I told you earlier, in a sense that there were a lot of kind of uh, empirical exercises conducted where essentially anything could go. And like people were trying to rationalize the data based on what they found. Whereas what I think is the kind of strength of what I am doing in my research is that if you start from the principle of decarbonization and the fact that we want to go to the zero emission world, that principle is strictly about emissions because that's essentially the objective. And we can debate whether this is the only objective we have. Maybe, maybe we should support some other considerations like innovation or like maybe impact that companies make. But it's sense-restricted, that's exactly how you should evaluate the progress towards that particular objective. And that's why I think emissions are attractive. So, and I think this is how my research got more attention, in a sense that people have found it more disciplined. And when I talk to practitioners, when I talk to regulators, they find it appealing because it's easier for them, for example, now to think of strict uh, kind of uh, principles, strict regulation. If you think about what's being proposed in the EU and also at the SEC in the United States, 
it's essentially very much in, aligned with what I'm doing in my research. They are not trying to tell you, please be a good company. They are trying to tell you, we want you to report your emissions of scope one, scope two, scope three. We want you to show the commitments to reduce that, etc. And I think that's nice because this is something that you can monitor. This is something that you can enforce rather than just something that is vague and very hard to kind of quantify what it means to be a good company, what it means to be like environmentally friendly. Yeah, no, definitely. So we talked about a bit of the about price of sin. You mentioned about how this was reflected in the returns, but there is also um, another take of the of the paper, which is about divesting across companies that are sinful. Like in your case, in that case, it was tobacco, but now we could theoretically translate it to a climate unfriendly companies or brown mm-hmm. companies. So how does that part of price of sin um, relate to today's divestment mm-hmm. efforts or divestment debate? That's great. I, I think the economics is the same in a sense that you should expect that divestment effort should have some, some price effects. What we highlighted at that time 15-20 years ago was that it has to be sizable, that divestment to actually play a role. And interestingly enough, at that time, the numbers of divestment we talk about were relatively lower uh, to what you could potentially imagine right now. But what's kind of become interesting and surprising in the data kind of that uh, we have looked at is that if you look at the carbon emissions as a kind of metric on which you are going to screen, you don't see that there is a lot of divestment of that. Mm-hmm. So what you are seeing is that investors definitely expect lower uh, uh, prices today. So they only going to invest if the price is low. But it's not like it was for tobacco, where certain investors would say, no matter what price you offer to me, I don't want to hold that. And I think this is a bit of a difference. And and this is, again, another kind of misunderstanding that some, especially academics, have. Because they are trying to fit this story of divestment as the only explanation for why prices potentially could differ across the companies. But it's it need not to be. What simply could be happening is that people are not going to divest. They just simply want to hold. Uh, they want to get a higher compensation for the risk they hold. And that's why... It's not exactly symmetric in this way, even though divestment could be potentially a channel. But I don't think this is what we find as the dominating channel in the data that we have looked at. I would like to spend more about time discussing divestment and engagement, but I just want to touch on two different things uh, before we move on to the end. Uh, first thing is about debt markets. So we've t- talked only about equity markets so far. Could you just briefly uh, say why it is important to look at debt markets mm-hmm. uh, when talking about climate change and finance? No, absolutely. I mean, the first thing, of course, to recognize is that that is one of the instruments through which companies raise capital. So anywhere where capital provision is going to become important and it's going to be subjected to risk, uh, that's going to become an issue. But I think what also becomes important is that this is not just a truly symmetric story, equity versus debt. And I think the big difference between equity and the debt claim is that uh, debt is really a claim which has a strong kind of default component to it. And essentially, in the context of uh, transition risk that we, for example, have been talking about, it's not obvious that companies that face transition risk necessarily need to go bankrupt. So in this regard, they face pressure, they face the regulatory kind of or innovation uh, challenge, but uh, that does not necessarily mean that out of a sudden they are more likely to go bankrupt. So the ex-ante hypothesis is not necessarily clear that what you expect in, uh, what you observe in equity should naturally translate to debt. So 
So this is just, again, an empirical question. And I think to my understanding, at least of the data I have looked at, you don't find that the effects are as strong in the debt market, which kind of translates to the simple statement that that there doesn't seem to be much of this default risk yet that is consequence of this transition risk. But at the same time, I, I would argue that there are some parts of the market where that could become more relevant. So thinking about like real estate or thinking about insurance companies in the presence of physical risk, I think it's a legitimate kind of ground to argue that, uh, that there could be potentially pricing effects also on the debt side. And also you can think about sovereign debt, uh, like all this restructuring uh, that we have these days, the discussion about the uh, kind of uh, forgiveness uh, for green and all, all sorts of kind of swaps that people discuss. So, But I, I think at the moment I would say that the debts are a a bit more muted relative to equity in the way how this transition risk is getting priced. But uh, also Patrick is doing a kind of some work with that, right? Some publishing some papers mm -hmm. and, and um, yeah, are you maybe collaborating or advising with any international finance institution or is it only in the, in the dimension of doing research as of yet? Yeah, no. So, so the nice thing about what has happened to both of us, I can speak on his behalf as well, over the last couple of years is that we got massive uh, recognition in many places. And uh, not surprisingly, of course, we got uh, uh, kind of uh, attracted by uh, some uh, private sector and regulators to help. So the two of us are advisors of the so-called climate uh, uh, center at Lazard, so that's a New York-based uh, investment bank. So, so we are doing that. Uh, Patrick, as far as I know, is also doing some work with the Chinese government. We have been independently talking to many central banks, so including the Norwegians, uh, including the ECB, including the uh, government of the United States. I have uh, had massive conversations with the Treasury, with the Fed. So, Bank of England has also had uh, approached us. So, so I think there has been a, a really big interest and, and the private sector as well. I mean, I think uh, I kind of, when you asked me earlier about the challenges of my work, I think I should have also add one more, which is time. Mm. What I found extremely difficult at the moment is to find time to do more work. I have a lot of ideas but I find less and less time to, to actually do it. So in some sense, it's a little bit of a curse of success uh, that once you do more and more and there is more demand on your time, that slows you down at the input stage. And, and I think uh, both of us are a little bit in this uh, situation right now where uh, we have uh, plenty of ideas, but, uh, but less time to implement them. So, so yeah, we are a little bit on the slow end of that. But the most important thing is that you try to do most out of the time that you have. Yes. Really and still brings a lot of fruit. If That's right. So. Uh, one more thing about kind of when we when you mentioned all this uh, collaboration with practice, I have one question about whether you ever considered working some kind of big companies, let's say in the consulting sector or, or companies that publish reports that are more like for executives based. I don't want to name any, any names, but like sure. you know, there's this outlets like big consulting firms that mm -hmm. publish mm -hmm. they claim it's research but a lot of times it's like big studies but their methodologies are often misleading and right. quite some limitations there's been this new one about sustainable consumption mm -hmm. but they even start their paper with we don't have like a causal we cannot claim a causal relationship and name quite a lot of limitations so given that these are often those read by executives i'm not sure if someone wants to read a 75 page Yes. Report. Have you ever thought of um, collaborating with someone like this? 
Yeah, no, definitely. So part of the initiative we have at Lazard is to kind of communicate our research uh, in a more kind of uh, simplified way to to the practice. And we've been uh, writing so-called uh, small research papers with Lazard. And, uh, and of course, uh, we are open to discussions with other uh, potential institutions uh, in terms of uh, their interest in our research. Uh, I didn't think of it as a kind of principle of what I want to achieve, but of course, uh, the most rewarding thing for a scholar or researcher is to have an impact, right? So you achieve impact through essentially informing as many people as possible. So so in this regard, I definitely would like to feel that more people want to consume what I'm thinking about rather than less. And in this regard, I would have never uh, know. I think so far what I have seen on the broader space is probably giving more uh, seminars kind of. So I've given talks to large uh, financial institutions as well, and I've been participating in some of this kind of broader private sector uh, conferences where I'm like one of the leading speakers, etc. But whether it's like a formal relationship so far, nothing like this has happened beyond what I've already mentioned. Yeah, but um, if anyone's listening, there is there is an opportunity. Okay, um, so what do you think is the single most important thing we can do as a society to tackle climate change? You do a lot of research on the financial part, but like if mm-hmm. you could sit down with uh, the president of the United States or someone and have like one minute of their time, what would you, what would you tell them or, or what do you tell us? Yeah. You just have like elevator pitch. It's, it's a very difficult uh, question because the climate finance is uh, kind of multifaceted and complex. And, and of course, I may sound like very academic in a way that I don't have any answer for you. But to be honest with you, the simplest thing that I could say that I would do is to act. Because I think a lot of what has slowed down basically the progress in the previous years was inaction. So just to give you an example, economists have come up with this great idea of carbon tax. You know, it was theoretically very appealing, Nobel Prize in economics to Nordhaus for so-called integrated assessment model. But fact of the matter is it was very hard to implement. And what it created was this kind of idea that either we do this great thing or we do nothing. And I think it was a big mistake. It cost us a lot of time. And I think what has changed, and I think this is a good change, is that now people have recognized that we cannot think of this holy grail as the only way to solve the problem. Instead, we should be thinking of like multitude of different approaches and try to see what helps. Okay. And I think that's, that's a good uh, approach. I don't think we should be dreaming of, of like one kind of great solution. And as such, I'm not going to propose to you. And in fact, I don't even believe that there is one great solution. I think Progress is going to come from many different places. I think innovation is very important. I think people's kind of view on the consumption, how we are going to evolve as a society are very important. So if you ask directly what people can do, yes, pay attention to how much water you consume, what you do with your electricity, uh, how you support uh, certain kind of environmental uh, actions. I think that's important because if everyone does that, collectively, we are going to achieve something. That's this kind of public good, you know, uh, in an idea, in a sense, there is a positive externality of everyone doing something positive. So, but on the government kind of level, I think uh, the biggest challenge, of course, was coordination. I think what we find is that countries are still very much self-interested rather than thinking of this as a kind of uh, uh, pan-national problem. And I think the more of uh, some kind of common uh, agreements, common initiatives we will see, the better we are going to kind of evolve. Right now, you kind of see the opposite with the Inflation Inflation Act in the United States because it's considered by Europeans as a kind of threat on the competitiveness of of the sector. So you see this, this is kind of something we don't want to see. It's great that the United States is doing this because this was one of the big laggards in the way how uh, they have actually evolved with the climate initiatives. 
but at the same time, the unintended negative consequences that that has created some kind of tension between the two important economic blocks. And I think this is important to not have that. And I think China is another country that I think we need to kind of bring on board. So, so if I could advise uh, the president of the United States, I would say have more conversations with the important decision makers in China because China is important uh, and it's not gonna just let it go in an easy way, right? In a sense that they build up a lot of success of the last couple of decades through some kind of industrialization, through the massive expansion of its uh, uh, production markets, etc. So, so it's very hard for them to sell the case that this is going to be stopped. They are, they are trying to do it, but at the same time, there is this gray zone, how much they are really doing versus how much they are saying they are doing, you know? So, so I think having someone externally who has an active line communicating with them and encouraging them to, to do the right thing, I think that would be something I would advise to, to follow. And if you would advise students and young professionals who want to pursue a career in this area, so not necessarily like do one big change, but contribute to the change in their own way, um, either you know by going into the practice and have a career, or maybe continuing their education in the climate space, what would you advise? You know the um, climate change management finance mm-hmm. course, but also anyone else who's listening. So to be honest with you, what I can say kind of with a strong conviction is that I don't think this is like some kind of fad. I don't think we are in a situation that uh, three, four years later, no one is going to be talking about the climate. I think it's going to become more and more of an important topic. So, of course, uh, as an economist, uh, I always think that uh, the demand for some kind of uh, skilled uh, labor is going to be a function of how important something is for the society. And I think that tells you that there will be more and more demand uh, for this kind of skill. So just even being a kind of informed and educated person in that space is going to give you an edge. And I know that the program that uh, you are part of is actually trying to do that. And it's great because, to be honest with you, Imperial is one of the early starters. And I think it gives you this competitive uh, advantage relative to many other graduates who don't have that exposure to to this kind of topics. And I, I think the kind of exposure you get is great. I mean, the course, for example, we have had I don't think there is such a course anywhere else that uh, you have taken. So, so, so I think uh, the more you know, the better you're going to be suited for that market. And, and, and I think there will be a huge demand. I, I mean, talking to people in industry, already you hear that there's a lot of demand for workers uh, with this kind of uh, orientation. But, but be disciplined. Don't fall for this kind of ESG thing, you know. I, I don't want to sound negative, but I just think there is a value to kind of being concept-driven rather than just uh, talk-driven, you know? So, so you need to be a little bit more rigorous in the way how you think of it, because I think that's what uh, right now is happening in the profession. When I talk to people who really care about this, they're no longer interested in the conversations, you know, we need to kind of be good, uh, let's do something, you know? People really want to talk about concrete kind of actions. That's kind of what you are asking me, or like, how do you do it from step one to step two? And I think the better tooled up you are, the more uh, kind of you can benefit to that, uh, uh, contribute to that kind of conversation. Well, I really resonate with what you say about being concept driven. Because um, a lot of people, you know, are, are kind of on the verge of, of going from being student to being a professional. And I mean, you could do a PhD, but you could also do venture capital. So there's there a lot of noise. And Absolutely. You know, how do you decide if you want to really do this? But Um, Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners? Yeah, I just want to say on the last point that uh, I think it really doesn't matter where you are in a sense. I don't want you to get misled uh, that 
academia is the only place where something good can be produced. I, I see a lot of great ideas being created in the private sector. In fact, I would argue that academics are lagging behind relative to the practitioners. And that's unusual. And that's kind of sad reflection on our profession that we are kind of reactionary, not visionary. And I think we are trying very hard uh, with some colleagues, uh, Patrick being my closest collaborator, to try to be ahead of the curve rather than behind the curve. And I think the more we do that, I think the better we are going to be positioned for that. So, so yeah, I encourage you to think about these topics because uh, I think this is the topic that is going to stay with us for a while. And just be bold. Uh, don't be afraid to take risks. And doing nothing is the worst you can do, is basically how I see it. This is definitely the great way to end this podcast. So thank you again, Marcin, for coming. Thank you so much. And I wish you all all the best. It was a real pleasure and excellent questions. So, so yes, looking forward to listening to some other speakers you will invite. Yes, we will also have one professor coming on sustainable consumption. Fantastic. So looking forward to that. Get any tips, more tips on how to be more great. sustainable. Great. Wonderful. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.